Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Anthony Fury. Thank you for joining us for the latest episode of Full Comet. Please consider subscribing to our show if you haven't already. War has commenced in Ukraine. But what is the scope of that war? Is Vladimir Putin taking the whole country over? Or is it less than that? Or is it more than that? What does it mean for us in Canada? To what degree should we be involved? To what degree can we reasonably be involved? How will this end? And is this the beginning of World War III? I'm really grateful that General Tom Lawson has agreed to join us today. General Lawson served 40 years in the Canadian Armed Forces before retiring in 2015, and his final position was as Chief of the Defence Staff, the highest position the head of the Canadian Forces. During his time as CDS, General Lawson commenced Operation Reassurance in 2014, which saw Canadian forces move into Eastern Europe to bolster NATO and serve as a check on Russian aggression. Let's get his insights. General Lawson, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Anthony. Thanks so much for joining us. What 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 a fascinating time. It really is. Uh, probably uh, hasn't been a more uh, mercurial leader mixing with NATO uh, than over the last year, and and we're kind of at where the crux of that takes us. Yeah, and I say fascinating, but I should, of course, also say scary in many other words in that direction, of course. Uh, late Wednesday night, our time, Vladimir Putin announces a military operation. Within minutes of his announcement concluding, it became clear that uh, this was not just limited to eastern regions of the country, that there were attacks on the capital beginning, boots on the ground throughout the country. What did you think when you watched this initially unfold? Well, we've been kind of watching it unfold in slow motion for nearly two months now, haven't we? And uh, uh, there was a, a, a thought um, amongst uh, observers um, that this could be a bluff to achieve strategic uh, outcomes uh, that couldn't be achieved in any other way so quickly. Uh, and yet, um, you know, all intelligence pointed to this being far more than a bluff. So uh, what's happened overnight really um, is almost an inevitable outcome of the movements and troop, troop uh, and uh, um, equipment movement that has been happening over the last couple of months. What would the decision makers be doing right now? The CDS saw this unfold in real time. Of course, uh, one has to brief, I guess, the prime minister, cabinet, the defense minister on, on what's going on, what the intel says, what the options are that's available. What is this kind of behind the scenes nuts and bolts of what transpires at a time like this? Well, it's interesting, although NATO has, uh, you know, 27 member nations of which Canada is you know, amongst the most important top uh, five, six, seven, um, Canada has a, a, a greater interest than than many uh, nations uh, because we have so many Canadians who uh, declare uh, a Ukrainian background. You know, we've got about a million people, which is the second largest um, diaspora in the world, other than uh, than Ukraine. So this is uh, this hits Canadians hard, and um, therefore, back in 2014, when 
there was the grab of uh, Crimea and uh, the war started in Donbass about uh, eight months later. Um, the Prime Minister Harper at the time was uh, was very, very interested in a strong response and uh, made it very clear to NATO uh, that we would uh, back up our strong talk uh, with uh, troops uh, and ships and aircraft. And, and that's largely what began, as you mentioned, uh, in uh, Operation Reassurance back in 2014 and has continued for eight years now and, uh, in fact, been expanded. We've got... Uh, Company size uh, troop uh, troops together with a leader in in Latvia as part of operational reassurance and and now uh, now that it has turned into something else not just uh, the conflict in Donbass and the loss of Crimea but perhaps the the threat to all of Ukraine uh, this Prime Minister uh, and the Chief of Defense together with the Minister of uh, Defense will again make very clear and have made clear to nato that we're in we're into discussions on uh, on where we go in in reassuring uh, you know first of all in uniting as an alliance a nato alliance but also reassuring those countries on the eastern flank of nato that are most concerned about what is happening in ukraine so all efforts all discussions will be to uh, develop plans as we've seen more Canadian troops are going to go over there to bolster those we have in the eastern regions right now. What about options when it comes particularly to reassurance for those folks in Ukraine who don't like what's going on right now? Because, of course, Ukraine, not a NATO country, and things happen so quickly within the first 24 hours. Uh, we see so much going on in the capital, uh, various different reports of different uh, airports or naval bases being taken over by Russian forces very quickly, with, really within hours. It seems like so much was already done just in, in the first few hours, in the first day. Absolutely. It almost seems trite to say that, for the most part, Ukrainian military, um, uh, those leading the response to Russia and those actually carrying it out, boots on ground, and the leaders uh, of the uh, regime, the government in Ukraine, are kind of on their own at this point. Certainly, uh, intelligence will be uh, sent to them. Uh, equipment has been sent to them. You know, they've been provided uh, pieces of uh, fairly significant punching equipment like Stinger missiles to bring down uh, Russian aircraft. Uh, and, and, and you know, early reports are that some have been brought down already. You know, it's difficult to determine the veracity of early reports, but it looks like they are inflicting on their own uh, some, uh, some price uh, to Russia, even in these early hours. But to your greater point, and that is what can NATO, what can Canada do for those on the ground in Ukraine right now? It's very little other than, uh, you know, sanctions and other things that could have an effect in the long term. But for someone like you or I, on the ground in Ukraine right now who have leaned towards the West for really since the early 90s away from Russia towards the West, I think it would leave them feeling uh, fairly unsupported by the West. However, I will say that this is part of a choreography uh, between the superpowers, if, if we can say that Russia is a superpower, they're definitely right. a fading superpower. But if we include them, uh, as we're going to have to for the next little while anyway, as, uh, as, as an important uh, power in the world, uh, there is a choreography between NATO and Russia that 
all efforts will be made to make sure Russian soldiers don't meet up with NATO soldiers because that now has us all looking into an abyss that we're not sure of the effects on the entire world. So that's that's kind of why Biden and NATO has made it clear that we will be sanctioning Russia. There will be huge sanctions and huge prices to pay, but they do not include Western uh, soldiers meeting Russian soldiers over Ukraine. Now, when it comes to Operation Reassurance, how many and to what degree and at what times were troops in Ukraine? Because we did hear that there was some Canadian presence in Ukraine involving military personnel, and they were quickly withdrawn and they were moved, I guess, from the the, uh, western border into Poland. That's right. So we've had hundreds uh, in uh, separated uh, and allotted to various bases uh, to help with basic training. you know, uh, Ukraine has about 215,000 active personnel. Uh, a lot of those will be recent recruits. They've got 12 months of prescription. So when they come in, you need to get them up to speed. And Canada's been helping with that. They've also got 250,000 uh, reservists, um, all of whom will have minimal training. So Canada has been part of the NATO uh, response to help them Uh, bring their military to a higher level than it was at in 2014. And largely, I think they've done that. I think Russia will meet some of the people, uh, some of the soldiers that have been uh, trained in basic military skills uh, to a a much higher level. Um, But uh, but those few hundred, of course, were only trainers. Uh, they, They were never supplied. Uh, with their own weaponry, with an idea that they would help with uh, a defense of uh, of Ukraine proper. So that's why they were taken out uh, once intelligence indicated that there was a likelihood of an invasion. General Lawson, you mentioned uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper, former Prime Minister, uh, wanting to have a very firm response back in 2014. He's released a statement uh, just the other day saying immediately after, of course, uh, Russia went into Ukraine, there can be no further compromises, no naive resets or diplomatic niceties. Dictators must be dealt with like all bullies, with resolute unity and force. Now, when we talk about the NATO response, I see the unity there. What do you make of the invocation of the phrase force? And we've heard other people talk about that. Uh, to your point, and I think President Biden has signaled there's not going to be any particular military response right now. Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, similar tune pretty much from all of NATO. But we hear that word force brought up a little bit here and there. What what can that possibly mean? Well, I really don't think uh, Prime Minister Harper in that comment or uh, really any NATO leaders right now are speaking about force being applied uh, to Russian soldiers as they enter Ukraine. Uh, that may be the strong desire of uh, people in, on, on the ground and in leadership positions in Ukraine right now, but it's been very clear uh, not only over recent months, but recent years um, that Ukraine Uh, It has a special uh, status, uh, although they lean west and are on a uh, development program to become a part of NATO, they are not yet part of NATO. So the the idea of the use of force, I don't think refers to uh, NATO troops um, responding to to, uh, Russian aggression in Ukraine. However, and I think that this needs to be made very clear, and it has been by statements today uh, by President Biden, but also uh, by the Secretary General of uh, NATO uh, and the um, uh, the head of the uh, European Union, uh, that if, uh, to, to quote the head of the European Union, if one single square meter of NATO 
territory uh, mm. is attacked by Russians, it will be met with force. And, and I think um, as strongly as that said, it will be received uh, by uh, Putin. Uh, he will not risk that. I really don't believe. Uh, I, I think if he did, and the full force of uh, NATO came to bear, I think that it would be the end of uh, Russia as uh, 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 the nation that we right know that we know right now. So back in 2004, uh, Ukraine had something known as the Orange Revolution, which was seen by many people as a sign that they were going to become uh, further westernized after that and a symbol that they wanted to embrace Europe and that they would be on the pathway to NATO. And when you were chief of defense staff here in Canada, you, you were part of uh, discussions around the plans for Ukraine to join NATO. And there were some people, particularly Putin, who absolutely did not want that to happen, and it did not yet come to happen. Many people who wanted to see it happen. What what went on there? Because I, I guess to your point, were they members of NATO now, we probably wouldn't be in this situation. Right. Well, well, I, I think there was a uh, perhaps an underestimation of um, whether or not Putin saw Ukraine as a red line. Uh, it's leaning towards the West as a red line. Uh, and as with so many other former uh, countries within the USSR, Romania, Hungary, Czech Republic, all the Baltics, uh, as they became uh, members, uh, went through their own development programs and became members of uh, NATO, I think there was a belief, especially in 2014, after the protests uh, that saw the uh, uh, the ousting of their president in came Poroshenko, uh, you know, the protests were called Euromaidan at the time. Um, there was a clear indication that Ukraine's national policy would be Euro-Atlantic integration with mm. the European Union and with NATO. Uh, and so at that time, uh, NATO responded as they did to, uh, as they have traditionally to every nation, uh, as they uh, make it clear they want to join NATO, that you've got a program to go through. And we should be careful not to get the impression that Ukraine is uh, like most of the countries that are already in NATO. And what I mean by that is, mm. you know, although Ukraine uh, is, uh, you know, the second largest nation in Europe, second only to Russia, uh, they, they really are in uh, in dire straits uh, economically. I mean, they've they've got a uh, a GDP that places them 119th in the, in the world, somewhere around uh, equivalent to El Salvador. The per capita income is five thousand dollars. They're they're the poorest country in Europe. Very high poverty rates, uh, severe corruption that continues, and yet they've got many things going for them, uh, extensive farmland, uh, huge reserves of uranium, but they are not a nation that would have found it easy to declare in 2014 that they want to be a member of NATO and then quickly become a, a member of NATO. They would have to bring their military under parliamentary control. And believe it or not, it really isn't under close uh, civilian and parliamentary control. There are ties there, but uh, you know there, there, there are all kinds of questions that would have to be dealt with. So you know that I think the idea that it was taking uh, Ukraine quite a while to get into NATO was just part of this process. Now there's a whole different calculus that's going to have to go into uh, decisions in the future. I think if Putin really wanted to make it clear uh, that uh, the accession of Ukraine into NATO would be something that would have, be, have to be put off into the distant future, he could have won that concession, I think. That's me mm. speculating. Uh, but if it was going to obviate the need for uh, you know, invasion into Ukraine, I think it would have been given to him. It's too late now. 
and, and I think, in fact, recent polls uh, since uh, January have indicated that um, the Ukrainians and the Ukraine population, which is about you know the same size as Canada, 41 million, a few more than us, uh, really is leaning strongly towards, uh, even more strongly towards joining uh, EU and NATO. But, but those discussions uh, at some point in the future when the worst of this has taken place uh, will be undertaken again with greater concern as to what it means uh, for world, uh, world peace. Well, what does Putin want out of Ukraine? And I think that's a, a question that a lot of people have grappled with. I know uh, you got to know some of your counterparts in Russia uh, and different uh, individuals uh, in the Russian government and in the Russian military. I, I think a lot of people thought, okay, he's just interested in these eastern regions because there are, are different sort of historical ties to Russia. Then we see stuff going on in the capital, a lot of question marks around that. W what do you believe is the goal out of all of this? Yeah, that is the question. What does Putin want? Yeah, you've uh, mentioned uh, the fact that uh, I was getting to be uh, fairly good friends uh, with my Russian counterpart, uh, General Valery Gerasimov, back in uh, 2012, 2013, 2014, when we had fun things to discuss, like uh, search and rescue in the Arctic region and, uh, and, and you know, really good things that appeal to everybody's better angels. And then, of course, in 2014, uh, he was on the uh, on the sanctions list. And uh, in fact, he remains the chief of defense, even though in Canada we see chiefs of defense in and out in three or four years. Uh, Valery Gerasimov, a couple of years older than me, is still in, uh, in control. Uh, however, even though he's probably uh, planning most of the strategy being used um, uh, and employed by Putin or under Putin's orders right now, you know, for instance, uh, he's uh, uh, been seen to be the developer of the Gerasimov Doctrine, which really is, uh, you know, this hybrid warfare where you use not only military, but disinformation, technology, cyber warfare, little green men, all sort of total war. Uh, and he is uh, now applying that. But to say that he would have any effect on Putin in his decisions uh, regarding whether or not to invade uh, Ukraine really, I think, uh, overestimates uh, the effect that anyone in the Duma or uh, anywhere else in the military can have on Putin at this point. You know, we saw a really remarkable thing happen on Monday. Uh, when when uh, the Security Council was called together uh, by Putin and one by one, he asked them whether or not it was a, a, a good, smart idea uh, to recognize the independence of these self-proclaimed uh, nations of, uh, uh, of the eastern uh, Ukraine. And when, when the spy chief uh, got up uh, and, and indicated, well, you know, probably not uh, spy chief Sergei Narashkin, uh, said, uh, you know, I think maybe it's it's a good idea to give the West more time to uh, to respond to uh, some of our dictates. Uh, he was dressed down in, in the most remarkable sense. This is his spy chief. You just don't do that. I mean, good leaders uh, anywhere in any democracy and most uh, dictatorships in the world will seek uh, the wisest counsel of their top advisors. And here, uh, before the entire world, he was dressing down as spy chief. So to get back to your question, what does he want? I, I think we 
let's speculate for a little while. You know, um, it, 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 does he really want to suffer the sort of sanctions that he's going to suffer in the next year or two as a result of a full inf- invasion right. of Ukraine? Does you know that the estimate is that he's going to lose you know upwards of ten thousand troops? Does he want? Ukraine inside the Russian uh, sphere of influence that badly, or is this a distraction as a result of a terrible economy that's falling mm. to pieces? Does it uh, shore up his uh, uh, his strength amongst uh, the oligarchs and others that kind of keep him in power? What does he want? And and uh, you know, I I think what he wants in the short term is very quickly he wants to use uh, a military strategy of you know, what the U.S. would call shock and awe to create despair in Ukraine and as quickly as possible, two or three days at best, uh, establish uh, air superiority and pound away to create this despair uh, and put in a puppet government and then back away, you know, sort of give some sops to the West and say, OK, we're going to give half the territory back uh, and then we can discuss, uh, you know, over coming months, the release of these sanctions. But strategically what will do what will that do for him in the long run there will be no nations uh in you know the rest of the world who will see uh putin uh while he's in leadership as a sound strategic partner not even china or or members of the BRIC nations you know brazil russia china uh, india uh, south africa none of them will see him as a good international partner so where is he going in the long run with this, that's an open question. Let's just pause for one moment and we'll be back with more full comment after these messages. General Tom Lawson, you mentioned shock and awe going on, uh, just lots of stuff bombarding Ukraine, Russia, uh, hitting them in multiple ways. Obviously, uh, we see those videos of, of uh, various uh, uh, various planes flying over the communities. Uh, there's bombing. We see kids cowering in the subway systems to hide from those bombings. And a lot of Canadians, a lot of people, uh, their hearts going out to them saying, what can we do? There's been various civil efforts already with uh, indications of charities you can give to to make sure uh, people who are fleeing can can have access to food. The prime minister's talked about the sanctions. A lot of people still wanting to see more being done what would your message be to those folks who are looking at these scenes and they see uh, things that you know really upset them and they go, we'd like to see a different response. We want to help these people. Well, I think in the short term, you know, we've had um, a month to two months uh, as a Western alliance, NATO, uh, to provide weaponry that Ukraine has been asking for uh, and often being told no. Uh, we, we saw that turning to yes in, in the most recent, you know, four or five weeks. So, um, you know, now they kind of have to respond to the Russian invasion using that. Uh, you know, the efforts that we've already talked about over recent years where their military has been brought to a higher level, it now will be up to them uh, to employ tactics uh, to blunt the worst of the effects of this uh, Russian invasion. But I, I think the issue in the longer run is uh, what can be done uh, by the West uh, to support the best outcomes that we could hope for for Ukraine. I think there we're into a very frustrating longer term set of 
diplomatic actions that include these sanctions, very tough, very firm sanctions. You know, my assumption is, as we talked about, that Putin would not continue any inertia beyond uh, Ukraine and into NATO nations, because that brings up a whole other discussion. Uh, but that still doesn't answer your question. What can we do? What can, can uh, members of the Western nations who uh, have such fellow feeling right now for those in Ukraine do? Uh, I think it really becomes this diplomatic effort uh, to uh, accept uh, some of the uh, stock market losses that are uh, sure to occur as a result of this, uh, to support our governments in their very firm responses, even when oil prices go up. Uh, you see within Germany, the uh, uh, you know the support for their chancellor as he shut down uh, the uh, the furtherance of the uh, gas line project uh, is right. remarkable. Uh, so you know, although that's a frustrating thing to hear, uh, and many would like to hear how we would be able to support them, uh, you know, militarily, I, I really don't see that as the way ahead. I think, assuming uh, Putin uh, Putin's invasion uh, is uh, blunted at some point. Uh, and and comes to a standstill either when he's replaced the current uh, government with a puppet government or before that uh, it will be uh, the effects of diplomatic uh, diplomacy and economic sanctions uh, that will lead us and Ukraine to better places. All right. I got to ask, because I said it in the introduction, a lot of chatter about it on social media and, of course, bad actors around the world keenly uh, looking at this space and perhaps looking to fill any vacuums going on right now. Do we see the beginnings of something like a World War III going on right now? So I, I don't think so. Um, you know, I, I think we can't even compare uh, Ukraine's uh, military to Russia's. You know, it's a uh, it is probably about uh, one tenth uh, the Russian uh, military uh, on one eighth of the budget, uh, and uh, you, you know, there's a full expectation. Um, that what's going to happen, you know, right now, uh, as Russia employs this shock and awe and hopes for a quick turnover, um, you know, uh, Ukraine uh, may surprise us. Uh, they've got uh, fighter aircraft, you know, they've got MiG-29 Fulcrum's uh, Sukhoi 27 flanker, sort of the, the generation of the F-15s, not so much the F-18s or, uh, you know, more recent F-35s uh, that the West has now, but, but they've got... Uh, some aircraft that could inflict some damage. They've got mobile surface-to-air missile systems, and, and and they've got a fairly significant number of people in uniform with weaponry and with bullets. But I think very quickly, Russia is going to achieve air superiority, and then Ukraine's uh, really only hope is to use a sort of porcupine-type defense. Um, you know, what I mean by that is a porcupine really doesn't inflict massive damage on whatever it is it's being hunted by. They hide under the bottom rung of the fence and, and try and fend off the worst bites um, by making themselves hard to swallow. And, and that, that can carry on for months. I mean, if, if the Ukrainian population and military are willing to allow that, you know, take losses and willing to allow that, then this can really be a very difficult thing for Putin to maintain a popular mm. uh, invasion. But to your greater question, can this uh, can mistakes be made and this could spill into a World War Three? Right. This is first and foremost on the mind of NATO leaders, uh, and and that's why they continue to say. 
Yeah, I mean, there you've got a huge price to pay, uh, President uh, Putin, uh, and 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 you will start paying it today. But recognize it doesn't come anywhere close to the price you will pay if you set foot on a NATO nation covered by Article Five. So, I, I you know, I I think that choreography remains in place uh, in a way that will hold. Can mistakes be made? Can a missile fly into? NATO territory uh, and then require a response by NATO that then leads to uh, a Putin who doesn't want to back down from NATO, possibly. Does China watch very closely at uh, the weak response that some would say uh, he has met in his uh, invasion of Ukraine and therefore make a decision or the mistaken decision, I would believe, to uh, invade Taiwan, even though the United States has made it very clear that no, no, that is a red line for us. Right. Not sure. Uh, You know, these are things that really start to come into the international discussion that even two months ago uh, seemed to be completely beyond the pale. Yeah, and I guess that's the frustration for some people watching from afar going, okay, the U.S. says you invade Taiwan. All right, there'll be a military response. There'll be something like that. Not the case for Ukraine. And I know we've covered all the the NATO issues and and, and sort of the longstanding issues with Ukraine. But I, I still think there's a lot of people uh, observing this feeling like there's something not fair about that scenario. Yeah, uh, well, let me tell you. If, if I was of Ukrainian background or was on the ground in Ukraine right now, I would have uh, been far more heartened uh, by a response that had, if not NATO troops, uh, NATO nations making unilateral decisions to come across and bring their mm. troops onto my soil. Completely understand it. As Canadians, uh, you know, well, we are covered by alliance, but even if we weren't, we would look to our friends for a, uh, a, a good, strong response. That having been said, there are massive strategic calculations to be made, and I, for one, uh, support the ones uh, being supported or being uh, put forth by NATO, by uh, you know United States as the leader of uh, NATO, uh, and and I think really NATO efforts uh, should we should focus as they are right now on continuing to bolster. NATO presence in the eastern flank of NATO uh, as we see these, uh, you know, several hundred more Canadian soldiers moving forward uh, into the Baltics, uh, probably a Canadian ship heading up there in the next little while. Uh, Perhaps more F-18s, don't know. Uh, F-18s have regularly been into Romania and uh, Lithuania, I believe, uh, in in recent months and years. Uh, Maybe we see that happen again. But all of that is with the idea of strengthening uh, the resolve uh, that Putin will see if he's, you know, in any way looking even further west uh, than the western border of Ukraine. I want to talk for a minute about Canadian capacity in terms of our military and should a stronger response uh, have been required or should be required in the future, to what degree do we have the capacity right now to fulfill that? I know you know this better than pretty much anybody, the long processes of the F-35s, naval procurement, uh, even getting those new rifles for for the Rangers up north that uh, took quite some time. It seems like it seems like these processes, and I, I take the point that you don't just snap your finger and, oh, oh, look, there's a naval resupply vessel or, oh, look, there's a bunch of fighter jets. But still, we go, does it need to take this long? What's going on with these processes here? And is this moment 
something of a wake up call or, or, or something of an opportunity for us to uh, us to give this stuff a greater nudge? You know, I think so. You know, as a, as a chief of defense, far be it from me to not completely agree with you immediately and say, you know, we should quickly double the size right. of Panther. <laughs> you know, I, I certainly would like to say that. Um, when you leave uh, the Canadian borders and spend some time around the world, you know, in NATO and, and, and see uh, some of the difficulties that NATO nations uh, are, are dealing with in terms of budgets and equipment and, and training, um, you know, you, you come back to Canada feeling not satisfied. I won't say that, uh, but but far more accepting of the status we have in Canada, where as a nation, we are almost entirely unthreatened by anyone. I mean, certainly uh, across the North Pole, we've got Russia and they do send strategic aviation towards us. And we're part of, you know, uh, NORAD uh, and, and the United States could be a target uh, for intercontinental ballistic missiles. And, and we're part of NATO. Uh, so Canada remains a, a, a tremendously dependable nation. Uh, as as part of those um, al alliances. So yeah, I, we're small. I mean, we have 65,000 regulars uh, in a nation. Um, you know, look, as we said, we have about the same population, just a few million less in Ukraine. And yet uh, we have uh, about a fifth of the size of their military. Now, having said that, uh, we have uh, three times their budget. So we spend three times their budget on a military one-fifth aside. And, and, and for that, what we get is a tremendously well-trained, not large, <laughs> but tremendously well-trained Army, Navy, and Air Force and Special Operations troops. Why am I saying that? Because you've asked the question, does Canada have the ability now to send good Army units, good ships, good Air Force uh, resources over to bolster whatever NATO wants to do? And the answer is yes. Not a lot, but yes. Whatever we send over there will be put in charge. They'll be put in the lead, you know, whenever we've sent fighters, uh, you know, when, into uh, the Yugoslav conflict or the Libyan conflict, our fighters, even though they're F-18s, they've been around for 30 years, they've been carefully updated and yeah they need to be replaced and i thank you for uh, plugging the f-35 because that is the right decision uh, but uh, but but they are good enough right now to continue to lead uh, do we have ready forces set to go we do I, I mean i guess i find myself lamenting well why can't we have an aircraft carrier but then perhaps it's because i'm comparing us to the us the uk France and, and I guess China, but you're saying when you compare us to most other NATO countries, we do actually have the ability to punch above our weight and our our our, our supply is actually not that bad. Yeah, uh, that's right. Now I, I don't want to go too far because I, I really do think we've you know we've been kind of stuck around a twenty billion dollar budget, less than one percent of GDP for for many years. Uh, and, and NATO has the goal of getting to a uh, 2% of GDP. Uh, now it's a little bit of discussion of gross domestic product uh, and how much you spend on your military, but it's a little bit what you do with your military too. So, you know, I, I would love to see that up, maybe not to 2% uh, in the short term, but make it $30 billion, increase uh, the rate forces to, uh, to 100,000 at no point. 
will NATO or any of our allies ask us to own things like aircraft carriers? They will be very interested in the fact that Canada, being as large as we are, is very interested in, yeah, not only fighters, but, but a really good, uh, robust capability to transport things uh, back and forth across the nation. You know, we've heard about these wonderful C-17 aircraft. We've got five of them in Canada. You know, over in NATO, there are all kinds of nations that share one or two of these things. We've got five of our own. You know, we've got uh, 17 uh, brand new Hercules aircraft, uh, C-130s. My son's flying one of those out of Trenton right now. Uh, we've got, uh, uh, we've got uh, you know, 15 frigates that are uh, have been upgraded recently or continue to get upgraded. And we've got uh, tanks, artillery, and uh, very well-trained uh, army. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think uh, there's an opportunity for Canadians always to suck back and take a look at where our military is uh, and then is it where uh, we want it to be. And almost every time you do that, you uh, and most Canadians will say, we are not where we want to be. Is this an opportunity to, uh, to replan and bolster where we want to get to? The answer is yes. How does the threat landscape change now moving forward? We've got what's going on in Ukraine. Of course, as we've established questions about, well, where does it end? Has it already ended at at these borders? Uh, Does it progress in a different direction? Xi Jinping obviously looking with great curiosity. And then other little flare-ups, whether they be uh, rogue state actors or uh, different terror cells, uh, things going on with India and Pakistan. How do you feel the threat assessment is, is, is evolving, is changing right now? Little fires everywhere. So uh, until this invasion uh, occurred uh, last night uh, and over uh, coming weeks, we're, you know, we're really coming to the end of a remarkable period of peace. Um, Now, uh, we we have to be careful of that. I I absolutely don't want to uh, undervalue the, uh, you know, the conflict in Afghanistan and in Libya, in Iraq. You know, these were very important uh, conflicts uh, w- with uh, important principles uh, defended by Canadians, Westerners, uh, with our, our blood and treasure, um, and yet uh, they were uh, they were manageable in a uh, in a larger discussion of world peace. We never saw superpowers come into uh, into conflict against each other. They were, we were very careful uh, to ensure uh, that peace reigned, um, even those smaller wars. We're taking place. So, uh, you know, I, I think we need to make sure to make sure that we keep our eye on the ball and the ball in this case is the world. You know, intelligence right now is focused on the Ukraine region. You saw really a tremendous job uh, by President Biden and the Americans to share intelligence at a rate that really constricted Putin from what he wanted to do. You know, Putin and his advisors will have well studied the art of war where, you know, when you're uh, weak, make yourself look strong. When you're strong, make yourself look weak. That's what he was trying to do. <laughs> and when you're a dictator, you're allowed to do that. Disinformation, you know, uh, who in the press is going to make you pay for disinformation? It's a very tough thing to do mm. uh, when you're in charge of a democracy because, of course, uh, people like you hold all of the decision makers to account. Uh, but here was Biden. Here was the West. Here was all of the Western intelligence holding him to account. When he said he was moving troops back to Russia, he was not. He was extending the front for what we saw happen last uh, last night. There was no fooling and, and, and no shortage of awareness. But 
I can promise you that the rest of Five Eyes NATO intelligence are very carefully watching the movement of, uh, you know, uh, Chinese troops right now, the movement of North Korean missiles, uh, the movement of the Taliban. You have to be watching everywhere uh, to make sure you continue to, through diplomacy, through uh, economic sanctions and through military responses, that you continue to tap down those things so we can extend this remarkable period of relative peace that we've seen since the end of the Second World War. So I, I think really, although there is a very important and heartbreaking conflict going on right now that threatens this world peace, um, it, it does not make uh, you know, the threat of war elsewhere in the world, in, in the Kashmir, uh, you know, in Taiwan, uh, out of North Korea, in Iran, uh, in the Middle East, uh, it does not make uh, conflict less likely there. So we need to, uh, well, we need to focus uh, our uh, attentions right now on, on the region around Ukraine and make sure that uh, any invasion stops at the western side of Ukraine and, and sanctions are in place. We also need to continue uh, as Westerners, um, Western democracy and, and, and NATO uh, and friendly alliances keep a watch everywhere else in the world. General Tom Lawson, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be with you, Anthony. Thank you. All the best. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.